Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my privilege to bring us the Word of God today, which comes from Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Please give your full undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Amen. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, I pray that at this time you would send your Holy Spirit to where each of us are right now as we listen to your word, that you would ready our hearts to receive it and to respond to it in faith. Show us much of Christ today. I pray this in his name. Amen. One of the weapons that Satan uses in spiritual warfare is lying. In John chapter 8, Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies. And what does Satan lie a lot about? He lies a lot about God. And the reason for that is that Satan wants to get people to believe the wrong things about God. Because if he can do that, they will either believe in the wrong God or believe in the wrong things about the right God. And both of those things are bad. Now, this may come as a surprise, but Satan doesn't only wreak havoc on our faith by telling lies. He also does a lot of damage by telling the truth, not the truth about God, but the truth about you. When it comes to God, Satan wants to lie. When it comes to you, he wants to tell the truth. When it comes to God, Satan wants to lie because he wants to cover up God's true character. But when it comes to you, Satan wants to tell the truth because he wants to expose your true character. Now, it's important to note that telling the truth is a really good thing. The Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. And the goal of speaking truth in love, it's to show people the gravity of their sin and then to point them to the storehouses of God's grace. But that's not Satan's goal. Satan's goal is to point people to their sin and then turn them away from God's grace. Satan accuses you because he wants you to be aware and hyper-focused on your sin so that your failures and shame seem more abundant than God's grace. To put it another way, Satan wants you to be so certain of your sin and so uncertain of God's grace. Here in Zechariah 3, the prophet Zechariah, he has shown a vision of Satan accusing a guy named Joshua 
and we'll get into later who he is exactly. But it's not just Joshua who Satan accuses. Satan is relentless in accusing all believers. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says this, that Satan accuses them, that is all believers, day and night before our God. This means whether you realize it or not, if you are a believer, you have been and will continue to be subject to Satan's accusations. This morning, we're going to unpack the nature of Satan's accusations and how we can withstand them. The first point today is this. Satan's accusations against us are true. In this vision, Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord in this heavenly court, and there's Satan appearing by his side to accuse him. And we've all been in Joshua's shoes. Better put, we've all been in Joshua's clothes. In verse 3, it says that Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. These soiled, filthy garments represent Joshua's sin. And there's Satan standing by his side, more than happy to point them out. I can picture Satan pointing out each stain. I can picture Satan retelling and detailing where he got each of them from. I can picture Satan describing the stench of Joshua's garments and making such a big scene and trying to draw as much attention as possible on Joshua's filthy garments. And we can almost feel the intensity and the heat of Satan's accusations in this passage. And what's so palpable is Joshua's shame. And I want us to notice this, that Satan wants you to hear what he has to say. Satan doesn't talk about you behind your back. That would be gossip. No, he wants to talk about you to your face. When he accuses you, Satan wants you to be present. He wants you to be within earshot because it's more devastating that way and it appears to be working. How is all of this affecting Joshua? Well, we might say we don't know because Joshua doesn't say a word, but I would say because Joshua doesn't say a word, we do know. Joshua doesn't say a word because there's nothing for him to say because it's all true. I picture Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord in this heavenly court, hanging his head, unable to make eye contact with anyone. I can also picture Joshua beginning to despise himself the more and more he listens to what Satan has to say. I think that's exactly where Satan wants to get us when he accuses us. Satan doesn't want his accusations to be a solo act. He wants others to join in on the choir. And Satan is successful if he can get you to join in on the choir, to get you to join in on the lyrics, which sounds something like, my sin and failures define me. I'm unlovable and unworthy. Or God will never accept me because of who I am and what I've done. What are Satan's accusations going to look like in our lives? How do we know if he is accusing us? Because it's not going to look like something in this vision where Satan is just going to appear by our side and start accusing us. But we do know that Satan does accuse believers day and night, as it says in Revelation. So it is happening. So the question is, what does it look like? And we don't know exactly what that looks like. But it's very possible, and I'll say this, 
that if for whatever, for whatever reason you sense that your sin and your shame are being magnified and God's grace is being minimized, it's quite possible that may be the influence of Satan's accusations. Or if you ever feel like you're being slammed wave after wave of your guilt and it feels like you're drowning in the sea of your shame without any sight of land or the grace of God, then that's also possible. That's the influence of Satan's accusations. Have you ever felt so unworthy or worthless? And those feelings kind of come out of nowhere. That may also be the influence of Satan's accusations. Now I say those could be, and they may be, Satan's accusations, I don't want to go as far as to say that they're always influences of Satan. Because although Satan does have great power, we don't want to go as far as to credit him for everything, or else we would make him to appear more powerful than he actually is. On the other hand, we don't want to dismiss it either. We don't want to say that has nothing to do with Satan. It's all me. No, brothers and sisters, it is quite possible you may be under the attack of Satan's accusations. And so whenever these accusations come in whatever form they take, what are we to do as believers? And the key is remembering this, that although Satan's accusations are true, his applications are false. And that's the second point this morning. Satan's accusations are true, but his applications are false. By accusing us, Satan wants to lead us to two false applications. The first is, don't bother. Satan truthfully establishes in this passage that Joshua is sinful. And his application is this. Because Joshua is sinful, he cannot be accepted. He is disqualified. He is unworthy. And that God would never love such a person. And there's even some sound logic to this. God is holy. This is true. God is sinless. And in his holiness, he is antithetical to sin. Another fact is Joshua is sinful. There's no disputing that. Joshua was the high priest at this time. This is a different Joshua than the one who took over after Moses. In this vision, Joshua is not only representing himself, but he's actually representing the entire nation of Israel, all of God's people. In the context of Zechariah, God's people, the Israelites, they're returning back to Jerusalem after having been in exile for 70 years. God is showing them mercy and allowing them to return. However, after these 70 years, the people are still sinful. Joshua's garments are still soiled. The exile didn't fix the problem of their sin And Joshua and the people returned with filthy garments. Satan's application, therefore, is this. Joshua is unacceptable. The people are unacceptable. They must be rejected. Because holiness cannot have a positive relationship with sinfulness. And God is holy and the people are sinful. And so Satan's application is for you who are sinful. Why bother? Why bother? What chance does somebody like Joshua have to be accepted by a most holy God? What chance does someone like you have to be accepted and loved by a most holy God, given the things you've done? 
your history of sin and your filthy garments. The interesting thing here is that awareness of our sin and guilt is important. And that's actually necessary for saving faith. We do need to see our sin for what it truly is so that we repent and run to Jesus for salvation. But Satan wants you to see your sin, but then run away from Jesus. And that's the difference between what the Bible calls worldly grief and godly grief. Godly grief is when you truly grieve over your sin and you mourn over your sin and you repent and then you turn to Christ and you know that you are truly forgiven because of him. Worldly grief is different. Worldly grief is when you don't truly grieve over your sin or you do truly grieve over your sin, but you don't know that you're truly forgiven in Christ. How can you tell if you struggle with worldly grief? One way to tell is if you say, I can't forgive myself. Or if you hear somebody say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. You're still punishing yourself in your own way, even though God is not punishing you. By accusing you, Satan wants you to always be punished for your sin. He wants you to always feel unforgiven, even though God has forgiven you. Satan wants to keep your shame as fresh as possible. And so he will accuse you day after day after day. And his conclusion is this. You shouldn't bother with God because God won't bother with somebody like you. Another false application of Satan's is this. Be better. If Satan can't get you to not bother with God at all, the next best option is to get you to try to be better. Saying this, by being better, you can get God to love you more. And this is what we call legalism. And for those of you who grew up in gospel-centered churches, you know legalism is a bad thing and it's a wrong thing. However, just because you deny legalism doctrinally, it doesn't mean you don't believe it practically. I think there are a lot of Christians who grew up in gospel-centered churches who deny legalism doctrinally, but still embrace it practically. How can we tell? Well, ask yourself, do you believe what legalism says at all to any degree? Legalism says, God loves me when I obey. He loves me more when I obey. And he loves me less when I disobey. Legalism is the belief that God's love for us is based on us. And so when Satan accuses you, he's saying, look how big your sins are, which is true. But then he says, you can make up for them and get God to love you again by being better. And that's false. In an article I read recently on the Gospel Coalition, a woman named Kendra Dahl shared about how she had an abortion at the age of 16 and how for many, many years that defined her. And she says that it wasn't until she re-entered the church at the age of 25 that she began to understand that her identity is not in her past sin and what she has done, but her identity is in Jesus Christ. During those 10 years, before she came back to the church, she describes how she was trying to make up for her past. 
But then it was only till later that she realized Jesus has secured for her her justification. It was after knowing the grace and goodness and sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that she began to change the way that she talks about her past and the way that she views herself in the present. She says this, if we're going to share about our past in a wise and healthy way, we must do so knowing it is part of our story, but not part of our identity. I love that part at the end. And it's true. Our past sins, our past mistakes and failures, they are part of our story. We don't ignore that. But when we begin to view ourselves and those past sins and failures and shame through the lens of the gospel, then we realize that they are no longer part of our identity. And that makes all the difference in the world. Satan wants to make your mistakes your identity. And he does so by accusing you. His accusations are true, which is why he sounds so convincing, but his applications are so wrong. Let's discover now the true applications according to the gospel. The third point, our assurance in Christ is unassailable. Up until this point, we've talked about Joshua. We've talked about Satan But now I want us to talk about the third character in this passage, the angel of the Lord. What does the angel of the Lord do? The first thing that he does is he rebukes Satan. And I want us to notice that just like how Satan's accusations are public, the angel of the Lord's rebuke is also public. Just like how Satan wants you to hear his accusations, the Lord wants you to hear his rebuke of Satan. And the angel of the Lord actually kills two birds with one stone here. While he is rebuking Satan, through that rebuke, he is assuring and reassuring Joshua. In verse 2, it says, The Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Notice that the Lord doesn't rebuke Satan by disagreeing with Satan, the garments speak for themselves. There's no denying and there's no disagreeing with Joshua's sin. Satan is telling the truth. Joshua's sin is plentiful and it is filthy. So then what is the basis of the Lord's rebuke? He says, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, what does that mean? Picture a a small branch or twig plucked from the fire, and it's still singed, and it's still smoking. The angel of the Lord is using this analogy to make such an important point, which is this. The Lord knows full well what your condition was before he chose to save you and love you. He knew what he was getting into. He already knew everything about your past. That the Lord knew that we weren't some mighty redwood trees that were so impressive. No, we are these brands plucked from the fire. The Lord knew that we were living in sin, that we were dead in our sin, and that we were deserving of nothing except the just wrath of God and hell for eternity. What God knows about me and about you about Joshua 
is actually far worse than what Satan actually knows. Satan is not omniscient. Nobody knows our history and our sin better than an omniscient God. No one knows the punishment that we deserve better than a holy God. Satan is rebuked, not because of his sufficient knowledge of our sin, but because of his insufficient knowledge of our sin. And this is the knockout blow. It says that the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. The Lord is telling Satan that he knows better than he does about Joshua's sin. And the Lord knows better than Satan does about our sin. He knows the worst details about our worst sins. And yet he still chose Joshua. And yet the Lord still chose to love you. Maybe you've thought at some point, if God knew everything I do, he wouldn't save me. He wouldn't have chosen me. He would have given my spot to somebody else. Or maybe you feel that God is regretting saving you because of what you've done or because you keep on sinning or you keep on doubting or you keep on backsliding. But if you're a Christian, God already knew everything you've done and he already knew everything you were going to do and yet he still chose you, still loves you. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love this quote from R.C. Sproul. He says this, to know that God knows everything about me and yet loves me is indeed my ultimate consolation. After rebuking Satan, the Lord turns to Joshua and he removes Joshua's filthy garments and replaces it with pure vestments. And I love that it says that the angel of the Lord was standing by while this was all happening. He was going to make sure that this got done without any interference, that nothing would get in the way. And Romans 8 talks about how nothing will ever get in the way between God's love for us. And I do want us to spend a little time exploring what, what's happening here. Because removing Joshua's sin, it looks awfully easy. It looks like he's just changing clothes. But I want us to see here that it looks easy in this passage, but it was so costly. It's important that we understand this. The Lord doesn't make Joshua's filthy garments disappear like a magic trick. His sin was removed from him, but that sin must still be dealt with. And how it's dealt with is addressed in verse 9. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Here the Lord is saying that there was a day yet to come when the Lord will ultimately deal with their sin. And what's remarkable is that the Lord says that it's going to be dealt with in one single day. This is surprising because the Israelites were in exile for 70 years and even that wasn't enough time to deal with their sin. How is God going to deal with their sin in a single day? We as believers know that God is going to deal with sin for eternity in hell. So how could he possibly deal with it in one single day? What day is this? Friends, that day is Good Friday. That's the day that the Son of God Jesus Christ hung on the cross and atoned for our sin. 
Where did Joshua's clean garments come from? Where did his filthy clothes go? Although Jesus hung naked on the cross, what we don't see is that he was actually clothed in our sin and he was wrapped in our filth. And there the wrath of God was poured out for what we deserve, but Jesus endured that punishment for us all instead in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to briefly address, does this mean that our obedience doesn't matter at all? Because Jesus is our righteousness, so we can just live however we want. That is not the application here. Our obedience still matters. Verses 6 to 7. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I, I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Here we see obedience does matter. Joshua is given pure vestments. His sin has been removed, but the angel of the Lord is still warning Joshua and encouraging and exhorting him to obey and be faithful, not as a means of him being saved. He's already saved. Obedience doesn't precede our salvation. And if you're not a believer and you're joining us this morning right now, I want you to know that you don't have to look like a Christian before being a Christian. That is not how the gospel works. No, the gospel says, no, we repent of our sin. We acknowledge our sin. And then we trust and believe that Jesus dealt with our sin on the cross. It is by God's grace we are saved. It is not by our works. And that is what we see here. Joshua is redeemed, he is saved, his sin is removed, and then he is encouraged to obey. Not so that he may be saved, but so that he can experience the blessings and privileges that come with obedience. And to close this morning, where do we continue to find assurance every day? Because Satan accuses us every day. And it's by looking to the cross and it's by looking to Christ that when Satan accuses you every day, you look to that single day and you remember that Jesus took your place and he took your sin. And now you are clothed in his righteousness so that when God sees you, he does not see a filthy person. He does not see a failure. He does not see an unworthy person. He sees a treasured, cherished, beloved son and daughter. How can we be reminded of that single day? There are a couple things. One is worship service on Sundays. And specifically during our worship service, the time of confession of sin and declaration of pardon. We all need that. This time where we are led into godly grief, which means we remember our sin and we mourn over our sin. But then the pastor, and this is maybe one of my favorite parts of worship service, he declares your assurance based on what Christ has done. And we are washed again. Our consciences are washed again as we remember the grace of God and that the blood of Christ covers us. Another way for us to be assured of that single day 
so that we may withstand against Satan's accusations is to partake in communion. Satan wants you to doubt the reality of what Christ has done for you. And communion helps us remember the reality of what Christ has done for us. That when you hold that bread and you realize this bread is real and you can taste it and you can touch it and you hold that cup and this cup is real and you can taste it and you can smell it. Through that, the Holy Spirit convinces us and reassures us as real as that bread is, as real as that cup is, that is how real the sacrifice of Christ is. That is how real the gospel is. That is how real the body of Christ is that was broken for you, the blood of Christ that covers you, and the promises of God that save you and seal you. I want to close this sermon with somewhat of a bombshell. This angel of the Lord in this passage isn't just any angel. This particular angel is always referred to as the angel of the Lord, not just an angel of the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, there's a difference between the angel and other angels. And this angel does things in this passage that ordinary angels don't have the authority to do. In verse 4, this angel says, I take your iniquities away from you. Ordinary angels don't have the authority to remove sin. And many scholars believe that this angel of the Lord is an Old Testament appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. In other words, it is the second person of the Trinity. It is Jesus before he took on flesh, which means this entire time, it was Jesus who was coming to the defense of Joshua. It was Jesus who was rebuking Satan. It was Jesus who was removing Joshua's sin, knowing full well that he would pay the full price later on. With Jesus, with such a savior, none of Satan's accusations hold any water. Romans 8, 33 to 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Amen. Praise the Lord. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus, our Savior who is interceding for us every day, and we need that because Satan is accusing us every day. We thank you that because of Christ Satan's accusations will not win. They will not overcome us and they will not defeat us. Remind my brothers and sisters here that they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ in pure vestments, which were so costly that it cost the son his life. Father God, we worship you. We thank you. We praise you for such a salvation and hope and assurance. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.